good morning and happy Father's Day to all the dads who are here or watching online. It's great to have you with us. Hope you enjoy your gift later today. Don't, don't forget that if you hadn't gotten it already on your way out to get your popping peanuts, okay? However you choose to enjoy those, okay? That's up to you. You get to choose today. All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the final chapter of the book of Micah. It's going to be chapter 7, so go ahead and turn there. We're going to be finishing up the book of Micah this morning after nine weeks. It's been a great series, and uh, looking forward to kind of closing this book out. But to do it, we're going to have to move pretty rapidly today, cover a lot of ground, and do it in a quick amount of time. So Micah chapter 7, and just so you know, it's kind of divided into two major sections. Verses verses 1 through verse 13 is really the first section, and, and it's what we're going to see, uh, the theme in, in the first half is how God turns misery into hope. Misery into hope. And then the second section, verses 14 through 20, is really, we're going to really see a good picture of God's compassion and His mercy over His people. So a little different theme than we've experienced the last eight chapters or so. And so this is how we're going to end this great book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7, let's begin with verse 1. It says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. And what Micah is doing here, he's really describing the state of his heart. He's really describing the, the, the state of God's people. And we hear the sadness uh, in this writing and in these words. He compares the sadness and the disappointment in his heart to that of a gleaner who has no harvest to pick from. And here's what that, that means. God's law, particularly in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, required that a, a farmer who had a field or a vineyard, that he would leave a portion of his fruit or uh, his crop for the poor. Typically, the way that would look is on the outer edges, the perimeter of his field or the perimeter of his vineyard. He uh, would leave uh, the fruit hanging on the vine or on the tree or, or whatever it was. He would leave that. And the reason is because God's word said that would be a provision for the poor. As they were walking down the road, they could easily pick from the fruit of the vine or, or the crop, whatever was there, uh, to fill their need, to fill their hunger. That was a requirement. And so what Micah is doing is drawing us back to that Old Testament law. He says his heart is so sad, his spirit is so disappointed over the sins of God's people that he's like a gleaner. He's like a hungry man who shows up to a field to pick some grapes or some figs or whatever it is, and he finds nothing left behind. In fact, he's so disappointed, he uses these three words, woe is me. Woe is me. And usually when we see this word woe, especially in the Old Testament, it's announcement of God's judgment, but not here. It's a different word. As a matter of fact, this is only used twice in the Old Testament. This word woe really points to a deep laden sorrow. If you're taking notes, the word woe here means to be undone. It means to be torn up and to be full of sorrow. And so that describes Micah's heart here toward his own people. He is undone by their sins. He is torn up by their obedience. He is heartbroken and full of sorrow. And as, and as sad as that is, that's the kind of heart that God must put into a person who desires to see people come out of darkness into light. 
You see, that's why you and I have to be people who are not afraid to ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his so that we might see people just as God sees them. Remember, Micah is not, not calling lost people to be saved. These are believers. These are, these are God's people. Micah is calling them to repentance. He, he, and he's doing it with a broken heart. If you are someone that desires to see revival in your family or in your community or in your nation, you must be someone who has a broken heart, someone who is undone by the sins of your people, of, of the people that you live with or live around. You must be someone who is who becomes undone by the darkness that you see in your nation. God must break our hearts for what breaks his. If you're taking notes, write this down. In order to restore the hearts who have forgotten him, God sometimes must break the hearts of those who love him. Sometimes in order to reach those who are lost, God must break the hearts of those who have been saved. Church, I want to challenge you to pray that you would be a person whose heart is broken for the things that break the heart of God, that you would become undone by the sin and the darkness that so many are living in today. Not so that we might judge them, that's not our role, we're no one's judge or jury, but that we might have the opportunity to point them to Jesus Christ. And look, it's never too late. It's never too late. I just heard a testimony this morning of a 90-year-old man who gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Who gave his heart to Jesus Christ and now is a son of the king. Break our heart, Father, for what breaks yours. Mm, I love that. So, verses 2 through 4, Micah goes on to describe the condition of God's people. Listen to this. The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bride. The great man utters evil desires of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confession is at hand. So Micah, in this passage, he says a lot, and really what he's doing, there's a couple of marks that we find in this passage of a, of a people who are evil, an evil nation, a, a wicked people. He points out a couple of markers, and these may sound familiar to you as we look at our own day and time. The first marker that, that Micah describes is the absence of godly people. The absence of God. Micah's heart is broken for the absence of godly people in his own nation. It was so bleak, so dark that Micah says it's as if all the godly people have perished from the earth and there are none left. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever look at your society, your world, and you ask where are all the godly people? Where are the ones who, who pursue holiness and pursue righteousness? Where is the church? And you know the enemy wants us to believe that that, 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 that the church is lost, that, that God is lost, that, that we should be in despair because there's no more godly people. But, but church, remember, that is not true. God will not lose the victory. 
We, all we have to do is just look around. Where are the godly people? They're here. They're, they're beyond these walls. They're gathered together all over the world. Some in buildings like this, but some in tents, some in homes, some in barns, some gathered in fields, some under shade trees. And there are some godly people today who are gathered in secret places because if they don't, they could be killed for simply believing in Jesus Christ. Where are the godly? They're here. They're everywhere, anywhere. People are gathered together to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and worship him as the one true Lord. Do not despair, church. The godly are with us and among us. Amen. Remember Hebrews 12. It reminds us, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That means those who have come before us and those who stand with us. Because we are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Micah reminds us that even though there may be an absence of godly people, that they are there. They are with us and among us. But it is a mark of a, of, a, of a wicked people and nation. But there's a second one that he points out. Not only the absence of godly people, but the presence of wicked people. Instead of seeing godly and upright people in his nation, he only saw wickedness. And he describes his own people as murderous, evil, dishonest. If you're taking notes, this is a very simple truth. Where there is an absence of godliness in any nation or people, there will always be an increase in wickedness. That comes from books like Proverbs 29, 2, that says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, or when the wicked increase, or when the wicked have places of power influence, the people of a nation groan. They groan. You see, that's why it's so important that we ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his. When we see people in sin and darkness, again, not so that we can judge them, not so that we can attack them or call them out on, on social media or something, but that we might pray for them, that we might beg that God would lead them out of darkness into light, that they may repent of their wickedness and return to the one that first loved them. And so there's these two marks that Micah points out, the absence of godly people, the increase of wicked people. But then in verse 6, Micah continues to describe the sinful condition of his people. Listen to this. He says, put no trust in a neighbor. They have no confidence in a friend. They guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms for the son. And listen to this last part. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Did you catch that last part? A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Not, not ones beyond his house but those within the walls. Micah says it's, it's as if the Lord has just completely released the brakes. And now this is like a runaway truck that's driving God's people deeper and deeper and deeper into the sins uh, of the darkness of their sin. And, and the result of that is now that there is destruction everywhere on every level. He says there's destruction between neighbors, destruction between friends, and destruction even in the family. 
This is, this is such a, an important verse today for, for Father's Day, any day, but, but Father's Day. So many studies have told us throughout the years that, that when the family unit begins to crumble, eventually society will begin to crumble. What happens in the home eventually is what happens in society. And so when we see families torn apart, when we see the absence of, of leadership, godly leadership, when we see the absence of a pastor in the home, a provider in the home, a protector in the home, which squarely falls scripturally on the shoulders of the father, when we see an absence of that, we'll see the breakdown of the family, which will eventually lead to the breakdown of society. But those same studies tell us that there is no single person more influential in the home in terms of godliness and righteousness than who? The father. When the father is there and he tries to love his wife as Christ loved the church, when he tries to point his children to, to Jesus, not a perfect dad. If it's perfect, we all fail. It's not perfection. But those who try to love their spouse, who try to lead their children to godliness, a present father, nothing will make a family unit more strong. And when the family is strong, society will be strong. Micah says that's exactly the opposite of what was happening. That there was strife and destruction even in the family. That a man's enemies were those in his own home. Rebellion in the home had led to rebellion throughout the nation. Anger in the home had led to anger throughout the nation. As dads, as granddads, as godly men, we are called to love as Christ loved and to lead others to the light of Jesus Christ, not to be perfect. We fail every single day. And we're also called to stand in the gap for those who don't have that godly example maybe who don't have a present father or never have, to stand in the gap for those boys and girls and point them to Jesus Christ. Because when the family is strong, and it doesn't just have to be biological family, it can be when the family of God is strong, then our society will be strong. So men, let's stand firm. And then in the next few verses, Micah reveals how this misery, <laughs> for the last eight chapters, we've been reading about misery, uh, that God's judgment is coming. His, his hand of wrath is on his people, and they are fearful, and they are awaiting their, their destruction. And so it's been misery, 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 but we're beginning to see things turn as Micah reveals how misery turns to hope. Let's look at verse 7. But as for me, Micah says, I will look to the Lord... I will wait for the Lord of my, the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice, not over me, Micah says, O oh my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes my judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. I, I love Micah's opening words here in this passage. But as for me, but as for me, those are familiar words from the Old Testament. As for me, Micah puts the spotlight on himself here. 
Not to praise himself, not by any means, but to highlight his own sin against God, his own failure to meet the obedience of God. He puts the light on it. Micah says, but as for me. Do you know what, you know what the devil wants us to do? He doesn't want us to say, but as for me. He wants us to say, but as for them. <laughs> not me. We're in, this, we're in this spot because of them. This is all their fault. If it wasn't for that leader, if it wasn't for that political party or that group or that sinner, then things wouldn't be like this. But Micah doesn't do that at all, does he? He doesn't say, but as for them. He says, but as for me. And what he's doing, he's confessing his own sin. He's confessing his own shortcomings to fulfill God's commands. Confession is such an important discipline of followers of Christ. It's something that we, we try to instill in our worship services every single Sunday in some way, in some shape, drawing us to the importance of confession. Not only should we be heartbroken for the sins of those we live with and live among, we should be heartbroken for our own sins. Not that we'll stay broken, but that we'll confess those sins and be completely restored from those sins. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we, if we confess, if we confess our sins, he will be faithful every single time and just, because that's who he is, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Micah says, but as for me, and then he goes on to mention two very important things in verse seven that I think are important for us. He says, I will look to God and I will wait for God. I will look to God and I will wait for God. Two important things that you and I need to make sure we're doing every single day. First of all, we are a people, especially in this nation, when there's a problem, we want a solution, right? I mean, that's kind of been our history. If there's a problem, you know what? People rise up and we solve it. And we, that's kind of who we are. That's kind of in us as Americans. You know, that's part of our freedom. That's part of our history. That's part of our story. And so when there's a problem, we look to a person, a certain leader to be the solution or a certain group or a certain system or philosophy. But you know what? There's always other people who say, no, that's not the answer. This is the answer. This leader, this philosophy, this system, this is the answer. But Micah says, no, none of that is right. We don't look to another human being or a group or a system for the solution in our society. We look to the Lord. We are to look to Jesus. We're to fix our eyes on Christ because when we see him, everything else grows strangely dim. Micah says, as for me, as for me, I will look to the Lord. But then he says something else. Second of all, he says, I will wait on the Lord. Not only will I look to the Lord as the solution for my society, for the confusion in my community, but I will also, I will also wait on him. We don't like to wait, do we? No, no, no. We don't like to wait. But you know what waiting does? It reminds us that God doesn't work on our timetable. That he doesn't, he doesn't work always in the time that we think he ought to. Mike is saying, I will not look to a person, a group, a system to solve the chaos of my community or my culture. I will wait for the one true living God who will eventually transform my sorrow to celebration. Micah says, as for me, as for me, even though I, I will be included in those who fall under the hand of judgment, Micah will not be spared. He says, even though I too will fall under the judgment of God, I will wait until he turns my mourning into dancing. 
until he restores all that has been lost. You know, sometimes when we see a setback, God just sees a setup for something great. Many times when we see a defeat, God sees victory. And many times when the whole world sees death, God sees a resurrection. If you're taking notes, in our watching, in our watching, God is often preparing. And in our waiting, when it seems like nothing's happening, God is often working. Does that make sense? When we're waiting, God is often preparing in places that we cannot see. And in our waiting, when it seems like nothing's working, God is working. Micah understood this. That's why he said, as for me. Yes, God is punishing us right now. We are about to be sent into exile. Our enemies will be laughing and rejoicing as we are in chains. They will be saying, we won and you lost. But Micah says, not for long. This will not be truth for long. While we watch, God is preparing something even greater. And while we wait, God is working toward victory for his people. That's something we need to remember. That when things seem out of control, we have a God who has told us in his word that he is control. So as we wait, we watch. And as we wait, we know God is working. We keep our eyes fixed on him, not this world. Not what's happening around us or to us, but to him and to the truth of his word. And then Micah lets us see that things are beginning to change. Listen to verses 10 through 11. He says, then my, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her. So we're seeing something different here. The enemy will see that God is working toward victory and the shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Where's your God, by the way? My eyes will look upon her and now she will be trampled down. That's the enemy, like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary will be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of all of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. What, what Micah is really describing in this passage is hope. Hope restored. Remember, misery turned into hope. Even though God's people had fallen in their sin, Micah's saying there will come a day when they will rise again. Even though they were once walking in darkness, there will become a time where they will walk in light once again. Micah is describing here a day of restoration, a day of redemption, a day of resurrection. A day of resurrection for Jerusalem specifically. It would be a day of building walls back. A day when Jerusalem would be the centerpiece of all the nations. A day when Micah would see God turn the misery of his people into hope and into glory. And so we're beginning to see the change. We're beginning to see the other, uh, the other part of God's character. Not only is he a God of justice and wrath and strength, but he is also a God of, of uh, the one that turns mercy or misery into hope. The one who turns his punishment into promises. And that's what we see in verse 14 and 15. This Lord of compassion, this good, good father who has good, good gifts for his children. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forestine, the midst of a garden land. 
Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. And so they mention, Micah mentions here the rod and the staff. Of course, he's talking about a shepherd, one who protects his people. The, the grazing that Micah speaks of is God's provisions for his people. God's going to protect his people. There's going to be a day when he provides for all of their needs. God is saying through Micah, in, you were once oppressed, but now you're going to be protected. In the areas where you were once vulnerable, you are now going to be victorious. When, when the Lord, what the Lord is going to do will be even more marvelous, it says, than what he did when he delivered his people from Egypt. So we're seeing, the thing, we're seeing things begin to change. God is moving his people from misery into hope, from punishment to promise, from defeat to victory. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. We see a promised blessing from God for his people. What God once did for the nation, what did to the nation of Israel, he will, he will now do the entire world. The enemies of God will become powerless against him and his people. They will be defeated every single time. And not only that, but they will be amazed at what the Lord has done. This is perhaps a reference, a foretelling of the coming Messiah who would come as a king of kings, who would come not as a mighty general to destroy these enemies, but that would come to lay down his life as a sacrificial lamb, that all, of his, all those who were once enemies might become family. And that leads us to the final passage, final passages of this book. Important passages, verses 18 through 20. What a fitting end to this book. It begins with a question. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Do you know that that's the meaning of the name Micah? It literally is a question in the Hebrew language. Who is like God? It's not a statement, it's a question. Who, who is like God? That's the meaning of Micah. Micah asks this question with his own name. Who, who is like God? Who, who is a God who can do these things that can turn our misery into hope? Who, who is this God that is righteous and he is strong and he is mighty that can turn even punishment into eternal promise. Who, who is this God? Who is like this God? Let's read the entire passage, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Amen? That's good news, isn't it? Because he delights in steadfast love. 
he will once again have compassion on us. He will tread out iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Amen? Amen. You, God, will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who, who is like our God? The one who turns fury into faithfulness. The one who turns defeat into victory. Misery into hope. Who, who, who is like our God that can turn a wrecked life into a restored life? Who is like our God? Let me ask you a question. Do you know this God? Have you opened your heart to see this God for who he really is? Do you see him for the amazing grace and mercy that he, that he has, that he has to offer because you've experienced his amazing grace and mercy? I want to read that passage again that we just read, 18 through 20, but, but I'm going to change the wording if you'll allow me to do that. I'm not going to publish it, but I'm just going to read it this one time, okay? I want to add my own words to this and make it personal for you and for me. This is Micah 7, 18 through 20 in the, the Chan Mitchell version, okay? It might read like this, who is godly like you? Who would pardon my iniquities? Who would pass over my transgressions? Who, who would not be angry with me forever, but instead show me steadfast love? Who would have compassion on me and conquer all my iniquities under your feet? Who, who would be the one to take all my sins and cast them as far away from me as the east is from the west. In fact, bury them in the depths of the sea. Who is faithful to me? Who is reliable to me? Who is steadfast in love toward me? Oh Lord, oh God, who is like you? And the answer is no one is like our God. No one. Do you know him today? 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of heaven and he came to earth. The second person of the Trinity, God's son, Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life on this earth. He died on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins and for mine. He paid a debt that we could not owe and he paid it with his own body, taking upon himself the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the weight of our sin, he took it upon himself so that we might be set free. When the whole world thought that Jesus had been defeated, that he was dead, when the whole world saw death, God saw resurrection. That resurrection made a way for you and I to live free, to live a life not for this world, but an eternal life yet to come. Only our God can do that. You can't find that anywhere else, not in this world, not in a person, not in a system, not, not in some form of government or a philosophy. You can't find that. You can only find it through our God. 
If you don't know that God, then you don't know his son, Jesus Christ. You don't know Jesus as the way, the, the only truth, the only life, now and forever. Do you know this amazing God who offers you today his amazing grace? If not, I pray that today would be the day of salvation you have a greater understanding of who this God is, a God of wrath and justice, a God who hates sin but loves the sinner, but also this God of mercy, a good, good Father who moved heaven and earth that you might be saved. Stand to your feet as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, we praise your name for you are a God of a God who turns our mercy into hope. You turn our punishment into a promise of eternal life. Father, I pray that if there's someone here today or watching online that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that today would be the day that they surrender to him. And Father, that they can say, who is like my God? The one who saved my soul. Father, if the rocks cry out in our place, if the trees give you praise, if the flowers and the grass and the fields reflect your glory, then, oh, Father, so will I. So will we. We will praise your name. We will glorify you. We will say, as for me, as for me, I will confess my sins. I will acknowledge my shortcomings, but I'll also acknowledge God, who is like him, the one who turns my misery into amazing grace. It's in his name we pray.